You may be seated. Words could not be more appropriate for us to sing as we come to the Word of God. We need Him in this hour. We need Him in every hour. And Philippians has reminded of that, has reminded us of that as we have been studying this glorious book. Thank you, praise team. I want to encourage you, and I want to ask the Lord right now to just bless our time of study in God's Word. I want to ask you, if you would, to take your notes and have them ready. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and call upon Him as we've just sung. Lord, we need you. We need your Holy Spirit to come and quicken our hearts. We need you to convict us. Lord, we need you to teach us. Lord, we need you to empower us. Lord, I need your help this morning as I preach this final message in this glorious letter that you have preserved for us. Lord, we thank you that these are your words, and may we see your words this morning. Lord, this congregation does not need to know my thoughts and my ideas. They need to see yours. And so, Lord, I pray for that at this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this has been quite a journey. This has been quite a journey as we have spent the last several months studying this glorious little letter. Uh, The title of our series has been Joy from a Jail, Philippians. Philippians, Joy from a Jail. The circumstance there that you've seen all through these months is that the Apostle Paul is writing from prison and he's writing to people who are experiencing a great deal of trouble. Well, this morning I want us to consider this, notice the title, Unleashing Philippians in Your Life. Unleashing Philippians in Your Life. I hope and pray that these last few months of intense study of this this, uh, powerhouse book will leave you forever changed. I hope and pray that God is using these truths in you. Um, I have in my hands a notebook of our, of our study. Um, I printed all of our notes. It comes out to about 93 pages um, that we have studied since uh, the last few months. And as I was thinking about this, um, I just want you to see a couple of uh, stats here as we go in our study of Philippians. Um, first of all, there are four chapters in this little letter There are 104 verses, and there are 2,183 words. Now, out of that, we began studying in September of 2019, September 15th. So around coming up on this time last year, um, with some other messages mixed in, uh, we've had 35 messages from the book of Philippians. Now, notice how many minutes that is here as we've been studying, here either in this room last fall or through the winter, and then switching to many at home. 1,749 minutes we have thought about and talked about the book of Philippians. That's 29 hours of teaching. So if we've devoted 29 hours of teaching, 1,749 minutes, I hope that we're going to take something from this. I hope that this is going to affect the way that we live our lives as we have drank deeply of God's Word. So if you're new to us, you say, why in the world would you have 35 sermons from four different pastors on one little tiny book of the Bible? Because God's Word is just that deep. 
It is just that rich. Every word counts for God's great purposes. These are God's words. And so we want to be careful to really look and see what it says. Now, notice, so the question is this. What difference will it make in your life that we have studied Philippians? Now, I am just absolutely amazed at the timing. I'm amazed at the timing of our study of the book of Philippians. And just, I mean, does this help a little bit in our amazement? Look at the next thing. I mean, did any of us see this coming? Um, We did not see corona coming, but it was corona and everything that came with corona. What all came with corona? But what about this one? Empty streets. I mean, this is, I I was in my car shocked on April 21st, Tuesday morning, 7.45 a.m., and that's Sheridan Street. And I know some of you don't live right in this neighborhood. You don't travel on Sheridan. Sheridan Street is usually a disaster um, on Sunday morning, uh, or excuse me, on Tuesday morning at 7.45. But notice that. It was empty. What does that? And then here we are with this next one. We're all wearing masks. And we're amazed at how this whole thing of mask and, and changing so much of our lives from isolating ourselves and being in homes. And then, of course, we went on to, as we couldn't worship in here, what in the world would possess us to tear up the worship center? And it'd be this way for months. This room was, was destroyed before it was put back together again. And And at first we thought it was going to be just a couple of weeks, and then it went on and on, and these pews sat empty week after week after week, and then month after month. You see, there have been some great challenges. And then we came to the tragic, horrific events over the death of George Floyd, and not only George Floyd, but others that we look at that and we say, ah, Again, here we are again. And let me tell you that there were police officers in this church that were as enraged as anyone, perhaps in some cases even more so, because they are noble and they're righteous in their hearts and in their minds. And when they see these tremendous injustices, especially when it's kind of like when a pastor sees another pastor fail. You can't imagine what that does to other. You think it bothers you. It really bothers pastors because we see the wounding of this. And then, of course, with the death of George Floyd, uh, a great upheaval in our society. My friends, we have seen unprecedented days of strife in our nation with a deep rift that has been coming that now even as we get to still, it's not over. I mean, as we continue to look at the election that's in front of us, we have one man who acts like a child who has great policies and principles that are more in line with the Constitution and and very often with Uh, morality. And then we have another man who has all of the decorum and nobility, but with very often questionable principles that that really change the view of the Constitution and issues of life and the issues of morality. We, we, We are faced with these tremendous stresses. And as I have looked at all of this, I have just said, What timing. 
we have needed Philippians. Let me remind us why we have needed Philippians. And there's some key themes that we've looked at, and I want to quickly run through them because we want to unpack the last few verses as part of our time. Number one, the key themes that we've seen is joy. We've needed joy. And Philippians talks about joy and makes some notes here. Joy in the midst of trouble. Sixteen times in these four little chapters, we see the word joy or rejoice. In fact, we see the phrase rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And you can hear the clinking of Paul's chains as he is writing this and perhaps rehearsing this in his mind and in his heart as he's chained to a Roman soldier. And he's saying, you can rejoice in all all circumstances because God is greater than the circumstances. Notice number two, we see the great emphasis on partnership in the gospel. This is the life of the church. Put that in there, just just right out there. The church, this is the life of the body of Christ. This is the life, listen to this, of the church partnering with those in ministry. That's what Philippians was about. Epaphroditus brought a great gift to Paul while he was in the Roman prison from the Philippian church. So they send a gift to him, probably a financial gift along with some other things, to supply his needs. And Epaphroditus takes back to the Philippian people a letter And it's a thank you letter. And throughout this letter, we have seen this great relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Philippian church. We see a deep love for one another and partnering in the gospel. Number three, we see the call to Christ-likeness. Never before have we needed to be challenged to be more Christ-like. Then in this, and then notice this, chapter 2, circle that right there. Chapter 2, we see the example of Christ. Remember those words where it says, have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves that is the same that was in Christ Jesus when he did what? Chapter 2 holds this great narrative of he leaves the halls of heaven. He comes and he's born a man. And I was, I was looking over these notes Some of you will remember that it was on December the 22nd that we came to that part of chapter 2. And I I was just amazed at God's timing in that as well. That as we come up on Christmas, we're at the passage where it says that Jesus leaves heaven and becomes a man. Being born into the likeness of men. He becomes a man and then he lays down his life tremendously powerful. We're called to follow in his example. Number four, unity. Never before have we needed to be reminded of unity, perhaps so vividly as this, not only as a congregation, but as a society. And we see from Philippians over and over again that we're called to be of one mind, of one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're reminded to not let the things that are outside of Christ divide us. But we're reminded to be united in love for one another, and love for the Savior, and love for the truth. Oh, we've needed Philippians. How about number five, suffering? 
A lot of Philippians is about suffering. Why? Because Paul is suffering as he writes it, and he's writing to his suffering people. But you would never know it by the attitude. Never is there a complaint or a lament. He is only filled with the joy of knowing Jesus in the midst of these temporary, light, momentary afflictions. You see, suffering is great in this world, and that's one of the things that I love about God's Word, is that God knows that we need to look um, at life honestly. We need to look at it clearly and genuinely, and that's exactly what He does as He recognized the hardships that are in a fallen, broken, rebellious world, but yet we see this, where suffering is great, God's grace is greater. And put out there to the side, Philippians 4, 4 through 8. That's where we see he says, and let the peace of God dwell in you. We, we see that this picture of when you pray with thanksgiving to God, that his peace that goes beyond all human comprehension will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And then finally, number six, there is, as always in Paul's letters, there is this call to faith and faithfulness. I have begun using those two words together over the last three years more and more in my own life. And be, it's because I see this as a theme throughout not only the Old Testament, but the New Testament. We see God is always calling us to faith, and he's calling us to faithfulness. So we, got, we, we need to know the truth and believe the truth, hold on to the truth, but we have to live the truth. And as we live the truth that God has given us, we see this, hold this, notice this, hold fast and stand firm against worldly living. Christians are not to be like the world. Christians are not to live like the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Remember with me that the church, we said the church is a colony of heaven in Philippi. That's the, that's the attitude that the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, look, you all are part of a another world. You're part of another citizenship. Worldly living, stand firm against worldly living and false doctrine. Well, this morning I want us to come to these final words. It's the very final words. In verse 19, I've included, even though Pastor Jason preached on that, and it went perfectly well um, with his ending message for us, which was so encouraging to my heart to see how God is the one who provides for us. And this is what we see as the Apostle Paul has just said, thank you for their generous gift. Look what it says in verse 19. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now that's kind of the end of the previous paragraph where he's just said, thank you for giving such a sacrificial gift for the sake of the kingdom. And he's saying, God is going to take care of you. God is going to supply your needs. And then he goes on, verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a doxology. Verse 21, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We're going to talk about what that means. It's kind of funny. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
And those are the final words of this letter. Well, let's look at that little linking verse there, verse 19. And my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. I want you to notice this grace-filled conclusion. And verse 19 is part of that. Notice this. It's the final statement of, of the body of Paul's thank you note. Fill that in. His thank you note to the Philippians. So that's what this letter is kind of, that's the pretext of this letter or the, 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 the reason for him to write it. And of course, he puts all kinds of other things that we've just mentioned here, joy, partnership, Christ-likeness, unity, suffering, faithful and faithfulness. Um, all of these things are put in that, but it's a thank you note that is laden with beautiful eternal truths. Notice this, the Philippian church has given generously to God's kingdom work. And so Paul thanked them, and now he reminds them, key thing, he reminds them of God's principle of rewarded giving, of rewarded giving. This is an important principle. We see this throughout the scripture, that as we give to God in worship, that he takes care of us. He is blessed by our faith. You remember with me in Hebrews, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, that's true in your finances. When we give of that which we have, and, and we say maybe, maybe even out of that which is, is limited to us, when, when we give to God out of that, not just out of abundance, but when we give to God, even in our need, God says, I will take care of you. You see, this is part of the way that we worship God, that we express our faith to him. Some, some people would say, well, pastor, I would love to give. If I had extra, I would give. Well, part of the reason you may not have extra is because you don't give. And that's not prosperity theology. My friends, that is the, the true promises of God that we see on principle throughout the word of God. We see it in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Look what it says. And I would like for you to read the underlined part with me. So get ready to read through your mask as best you can. But it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Old Testament picture of the storehouse, bringing the, each family would bring in so that everybody would be able to have the supply that they need through spiritual needs and through social needs. That was under the picture of the Old Testament. But notice here, the promise, and this promise goes on into New Testament giving, which changes a little bit, but notice here. And he says, and thereby, let's read it, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now this is an amazing principle that the Apostle Paul is lifting up and reminding the Philippians of. He's saying to them, you have been generous in your worship in giving toward God and toward the kingdom. And look what he says up there in the box at the top of the page in verse 19. And he says, and my God, it doesn't say may, it says what? Will. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. Not out of his riches and glory, but it said, as wealthy as God is, he will supply what you need. Now, this is what God does. In, in some ways, it's financial very often. In other ways, it's far beyond the finances of what he provides and what, he, uh, and what we need. 
Notice this, God always rewards generous, faithful, sacrificial, and cheerful giving. He always rewards it. He never misses the reward. He always does. Now, I mean, this is, this is a great time for us to just kind of recognize this because here we are coming up on next Sunday is fifth Sunday. I want to encourage you to trust God with your finances. I want to encourage you to give like the Philippians gave. I want to encourage you to step out in faith in trusting God and see if he will not provide. Here's what I believe Paul is saying this from. Paul confidently declares this because he knows it from what? Experience. He knows this from his own experience. The Apostle Paul was a giving brother. He was a generous brother. He gave his life. He gave what he had. He gave as there was need. We see that he was all in. And he says over and over and over again that, man, when I have much, God has given me contentment. When I have little, God has given me contentment. He does it through power, the power of Christ in me. I have learned that God takes care of me. And my question is this, can you say the same thing? Can you say, I know that God rewards faithful giving? Now, there's some in, this, in the sound of my voice would, who would say, I don't really know that. I've never tested the Lord in that. Let me just remind you that Malachi 3.10 says, it is, it is an invitation for you to test God. That's what it is. It's an invitation for you to see what God will do. Some of you have never done that. Some of you have only given out of abundance. You've only given kind of when you, when you, when you had, you know, what, enough that, you know, maybe I can do that. I, I guess I'll give. I, I want to challenge you to step across the threshold into faith and say, Lord, I, I want to trust you. Now, I just want to say our church has been growing um, very, very strong in its financial giving. I, I want to say that this isn't because the church is in trouble or church is in need. No, friends, we look at what the text says. And as we look at what the text says, we want to obey the text and trust God. My question is, do you know that from experience? Here's the question. Have you personally learned that you can't outgive God? That is a great thing to learn. You can't outgive God, God. His shovel is a lot bigger than your shovel. You shovel out and he shovels in. He, he can outgive you. Notice the next thing that you we hear. We, I want us to see the text that's there at the top, these last four verses. We want to very, very quickly look at them. Notice the box on the top of the page. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint. Circle the word saint up there in the box. Circle the word saint. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Circle that word. Especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, the word saint is a key word for these last few verses. We, we know that it's throughout Paul's letters, but I want you to kind of see this. And we have to deal with this. Um, because there is a great, in our society today, in this modern era, there's a great misunderstanding about what a saint is. And that mis misunderstanding comes from the Roman Catholic Church that has caused much confusion about this biblical term, 
by importing, in the 4th century, importing pagan beliefs concerning religious figures into ecclesiastical or to church doctrines and practices. So um, the, part of the thing was in culture around the early Roman church, there were other religions that had holy ones or people that lived apart from everyone else and they were seen as very dynamic people of some type of faith or some type of practice and they lived a set-apart life. And so they were often called saints, whether they were whether they were of the God of the Bible or very often and most likely not of the God of the Bible. So they were some type of holy men, holy people. Notice this. But when it comes to the Christian faith, the Roman Catholic Church said through heroic or exemplary virtue, merit, devotion, and religious achievement, these people are said to have already gained entrance into heaven and are not in purgatory. So a saint is somebody who didn't go to purgatory or they're not any longer in purgatory. They are already in heaven. And notice this. They are canonized by a pope. That's what, that, is, that is what it is declared that this person, after this number of criteria and these, uh, these things that would be evaluated about their life, and they're lifted up as an example to emulate. The third thing that you notice there is they are to be venerated. What is veneration of something? It means to revere it. It means really to worship it. It is, it is really beyond mere respect. Now, we should respect the Apostle Paul. We should respect the Apostle Peter. We should respect Augustine. We should respect various others who have been faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that have gone before us, but we are not to worship them. And no, notice the last one here. Under the Roman Catholic idea of saints, they are to be prayed to for intercession with God because the idea is, well, they're already in heaven and so they can talk to God about what my concern is or about my uncle or about my daughter who has died. And I want, I want this saint to intercede for me with God. And so the idea is to be prayed to for intercession with God for various issues, including the prayer of the dead who are still in purgatory or various other needs. Now, my friends, um, I know that there are some things that the Catholic Church that teaches that are correct, but this is one of the things that the Catholic Church teaches that is incorrect. And it is outside of the Bible. It is outside of Scripture. And it has brought great confusion to God's people, and I, and I can see why this would be a tactic of the enemy, that he would want us to be confused about our identity with God when there's so much in Scripture that is clear about this. You see, biblical saints, fill this in, the proper understanding of the term saint is this, is that biblical saints are seen in the clear teaching of God's Word, and the first one is this, Anyone and everyone who has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. That's what a saint is. It's those who have truly been transformed through faith in Jesus, not through good works, not through virtue, merit, devotion, or religious achievement. You see, there's a, a tremendous contrast here. Notice the next one here. This is the favorite term for Christians used by Paul. He uses it 40 times in his letters. 
The word saint, the Greek word for saint, hagios, or saints, hagioi, means this, set apart ones, or holy ones. Like God, God is holy. He's apart from the creation. He is apart. He's not like the rest. And so the saints who have been saved by our Lord Jesus Christ have already been made set apart and not like the rest. You see, this is, fill it in, this true sainthood comes solely through being washed in the blood of Christ. That is how one becomes clean. That is how one becomes holy. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. We see it here. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Look what it says. And the blood of Jesus his son does what? Cleanses us from all sin. Now there's many passages that we could go to. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. And 1 Corinthians is an interesting one to look at because these were Christians very often who were really, the, the, the Corinthian people was a church that was really messed up. They had some real moral problems in their church. And I'm sure that some who attended with them did not know the Lord, but many of them did know the Lord even though they were not acting like they knew the Lord. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We see this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy. You see, greedy, man, greedy is being linked with adultery and homosexuality. You see, that's a, that's a very serious problem. Nor drunkards, so is alcoholism. I mean, this, this picture of that. Or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Circle that first phrase. But such were some of you. Now, of these particular sins that he lists here, he's saying some of you were these very things. We could, we could really say such were all of us because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look what it says in the end of verse 11. In fact, let's read it out loud together. Let's end, read the underlined part. Let's read it. But you were washed. You were You were in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see those words? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This is how we come into this picture of being clean, of being right, of being a saint in God. And there's a few things I want us to see, just four gleanings from these verses that are here. Gleanings, gleanings, what does a gleaning mean? Gleaning, when you glean a field of wheat, that means that the, the people come through and pick up the pieces that are still there. Just some things that are there. These are beautiful pieces, nuggets uh, of truth that we want to hold on to. Notice here, number one, the saints value, true saints value the true worship of God. That's what saints do. And we see this in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there's a doxology. There's, there's many doxologies. Doxa means uh, doxology is a word of praise. And we see that in verse 20. Look at verse 20. It says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. And that's what saints do. They rejoice. They, they speak of praise. We've just been singing of our Redeemer. I will sing of my Redeemer and of the one who has purchased me. Look at this. Saints recognize God as God. That's what it says, to our God. You see that in the verse? To our God. They recognize God as John 5, 44, the one and only true God. John 17, 3, the only true God. Romans 16, 27, the only wise God. 1 Timothy 1, 7, the only God. So we recognize him as God, but we don't only recognize him as all-powerful creator God. We also recognize him as what? As Father. Are you looking at the verse? Look what it says in verse 20. To our God and who? And Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, saints also recognize this creator God as their Father. This is the beautiful intimacy of God's relationship with us. This is not just a power being, but this is a Father who loves his children. You see, this is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, the next one there you see, this is the Father of believers. And we cry, Abba. Father, Daddy, Father. This is a very intimate God who we serve. And this is what we see in the, the whole letter of Philippians is that this is the glorious nature of our relationship with our good and gracious God. There's a second thing that we can glean on page three as we, as we just wrap up. I want you to see these next three. Saints cultivate their relationship to one another. We've seen this throughout the book of Philippians. Paul starts off talking about how much he loves these people. Paul starts off how much he longs for these people. But notice here at the end, we see the word greet three times. Circle these words three times. In verse 21, it says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's what he wants the elders and the deacons to do in the life of the church. He wants them to greet everyone there from him. Look, notice the next one. The brothers who are with me greet you. In verse 22, all the saints do what? They greet you. That's, that's all of the people of the local church there, especially those of Caesar's household. So I want you to just notice this, that, that this is all about relationship. This is all about fostering relationship. I want you to think about this. For those of you who are parents and you have children... Well, if you're a parent, you have children. Okay. So for those of you who are a parent or have had children, um, especially young children, and more than one, you, you want them to love one another, right? You want them to get along well. Now, the closer they are in age, the more of a challenge sometimes this can be, right? I don't know um, exactly how Tommy and... And Michael did Morgado's uh, on that, you know. I, I don't know exactly what the ins and the outs of the Cadovius house are or the hill, hills are or whatever. But let me just guarantee you, whether you're a child or whether you're, you're a parent, you want your children to get along with each other and to love each other. I remember living over here at 2118 North 39th Avenue, just a few blocks away. Um, I have three uh, there's three of us. I have an older brother and an older sister. My older brother preached uh, recently here, my big brother. Well, he's four years older than me, and Kelly is two years older than me, and so I was the third one. I was the one that came along, and I was ADHD and annoying and everything else, and, you know, I was usually the antagonizer, um, quite honestly, 
But I just remember, though, um, in our home, when we were not getting along together as, as siblings, it greatly distressed my mother. Now, dad was often here at the church, um, or dad was often busy um, in work, but when he was home and it was there, um, there's no doubt that it distressed him. But mother got to really see us, and she, I remember her words. I remember that she would say to us, Mark and Andy and Kelly, if you guys do not love each other now, you will not love one another as your adults. If you allow your hearts to, to really be angered and embittered against one another, if you continue in this habit now, when you become adults, you will not care for one another. And I remember it would often send me to tears. I, I, I was difficult, but I... I, I I was a lover in that regard, and I was soft in that regard. And I would go hold on to my sister and say, I don't want you to hate me. You know, and I, I mean, it was, a, it was a real brokenness. Because I could imagine what my mother was saying. She was, she was kind of doing a little bit of what, the Paul, what Paul does in this letter. He is saying to them, remember there were two women that were not getting along in chapter 3? And he's saying to them, hey, Yodia, Syntyche, you guys have got to bury the hatchet. you got to love one another. And everybody around them, help these two women to love one another. Now, we, we see it here that there's this beautiful picture of us being kind and gracious and relational with each other. You know, one of, the, one of the great strengths of Sheridan Hills Baptist Church is that this is a loving congregation. People have often said, when I walked in the door, I felt like this place was different. Now, I'm just, my heart is burdened for all of the new folks that are here this morning that, you know, now we're hiding behind masks and all of this stuff and we're not shaking hands. Let me tell you, if we weren't hiding behind masks and if we weren't kind of stunned by this whole can't shug, shake each other's hands, you'd probably get hugged before you left here today whether you wanted to or not. That's just the way our people are. Um, you'd probably get invited to lunch by somebody. There's, you know, there's, a, there's a desire that. It's been a little bit blunted in these days. In church family, we have to fight against that. This should not be the new norm. Amen? The people of God have to go forward in faith. And, and I'm not saying be stupid about the biology, but I am saying, no, friends, we cannot let this dictate a mentality of isolation and coldness toward one another. We have to be red hot in, in great fervent desire that we are deeply connected with brothers and sisters in Christ. That needs to be a burning desire within us that we would be accountable. Listen to this. Before this service began, a brother came to me, a brother who has just gone through a divorce and done everything that he could to avoid that. And he just, he said to me, I just can't tell you what this church family has meant to me during this time. My, my heart has been broken, but there's people here in this church that they've been broken with me. And I didn't even, I didn't even realize how much they were going to help me stay. Try to make it in my marriage and help me stay with the Lord. Now, my friends, that is what Philippians is about that is what we see here, that God is calling us to be a people who really care for each other, who really greet one another, who really, I mean, 
yeah, we'll probably get back someday to greet each other with a holy kiss. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but you know, the, the picture is that we are to have a great love for one another. And we see that here. Notice this, every saint. This means there's no, he's saying, greet every saint. Do you see that in verse 21? Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. That means no partiality, no favoritism. You don't ignore the people who aren't like you. You don't ignore the people that are in a different, quote unquote, class than you. If there, there were slaves in the Philippian church and there were masters in the Philippian church and the guys and the gals who were masters and the guys and gals who were slaves were to love one another and care for one another. We, we, we see this picture that there was to be a no holds bar on this. That when Paul's greeting goes back to the people at Philippi, the elders and the deacons were to send that greeting to everyone in that congregation. Paul greets everyone. Notice the next bullet point there. The brothers are probably Timothy, Epaphroditus, who's carrying the letter, Tychicus, and perhaps Aristarchus, and there may be even some others. But those are the ones who are mentioned in other letters and in the book of Acts as having been with Paul in Rome. So while he was in prison. And so notice this in verse 22. All, excuse me, in verse 21. The brothers who are with me greet you. That's probably those guys. These were people that the people at Philippi probably would have known. They, these guys probably would have either been with Paul or traveled through Philippi. They would have known them. So he's saying to them, you guys greet everyone. The guys here that are here greet one another. And then look at the next one, the next bullet point. All the saints. All the saints greet you. What, what does that mean? All the Christians that make up the church in Rome. That's all of the Christians in Rome. So there was a church around Paul. Paul sitting over there in prison and people would stop by and see him perhaps. People would come and see him. People were trying to help take care of him. But notice this. These are the Christians that are there. Number three. Not only do saints cultivate their relationship to one another, but number three, saints rejoice in the salvation of sinners. And where do we get that? Look at verse 22. That these guys greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, I think the Apostle Paul was doing something um, very inspiring here. Maybe even a little, maybe having fun with this just a tad saying, hey, Philippian church, there's even people that work for Caesar who have come to faith in Jesus. He's saying to them, the gospel is going forward even to the upper echelons of the Roman Empire. You see, Caesar's house refers to the Praetorian Guard, the high court, and the central government affairs. Paul is letting the Philippians know that the gospel is being received throughout Roman society, including those in governmental leadership. And here's an important thing for us to recognize. Look at the third one there. It is important to know that God always has his people where he wants them. Marcy and I have seen that over and over again. That at different times along the way, especially when we were overseas and it just seemed like things were so intense and um, very often different. And there, were, there was amazing things that God would do that suddenly we realized God sent this person in our path to help this work. Um, I can just tell you that um, after 9-11, banking became very difficult in, in uh, Europe. 
and in North Africa. And we had large projects that you, some of you came and participated in um, of sharing the gospel with Muslims across France and Spain and Italy. And very often there were, in getting ready for those projects, there were huge shipments of Bibles and materials and videos, and there were contracts with hotels, and there were all kinds of things that we were doing so volunteers could come help us. And um, the volunteers would pay for it, but we would have to set it all up. And banking was a real difficult thing because they were what? They were having to fight against the funding of terrorism. Well, I remember at one particular time, we were sitting there and, and kind of part of what we were doing was a little obvious and part of it wasn't so obvious to uh, the bankers and to the people in government, even, even in France. And we weren't doing anything wrong at all whatsoever, but it was, it was just one of those things that would get attention or perhaps be muted by the system. And God just opened the door for, he gave us bankers that would say, okay, so we see this money coming in and we see it going out. And uh, in the midst of all this, as we would eventually talk more about what we were doing, one guy leaned across the desk at us and he just said, I am so excited for the work you're doing. And it really helped us. God always has his people where they need to be for his purposes. God, and, and sometimes you know that they're there and sometimes you don't know that they're there. But God is at work in this. God is always working around us. I, I want you to remember Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin. He came to, four times we see him mentioned in the book of John. He comes to Jesus at night saying, how can a man be born again? And we see all of these controversies, but it was Nicodemus that is with Jesus in his death and in his burial. Nicodemus perhaps became even a great leader in the early church eventually as one of faith, as he was high up, almost like in Caesar's household or almost in the upper Jewish household. Number four, and finally, saints depend, we see this in the text, saints depend upon God's grace, fill it in, in everything. That's what we see in the final words that are here. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the great send-off encouragement that church, friends, Christians, the great hope that you have is that God's grace is upon you. God's grace is in you. And this is how you make, this is not only how you're saved, but this is how you make it. Notice here with me, remember the beginning of Philippians. In Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2, it, right at the beginning he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the, what does it say? To all the what? The saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Look what he says in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. That is a beautiful blessing. That's a beautiful blessing for the beginning of a letter, and that is a beautiful blessing at the end of a letter. That it is God's grace. It's that unmerited favor that is so important. In fact, notice this with me. Grace, the only hope that sinners have, it's, is grace for eternal salvation and daily life. You need God's grace to be saved, and you need God's grace to be faithful to God until you are with him face to face. 
You see, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God upon those he saves. That's what grace is. It's not anything in us. Nothing in my hand I bring, but only to the cross I cling. This is the grace of God. Notice the last statement is there. It is that which changes our designation from sinners to saints before Almighty God. That is the beautiful picture. Do we still sin? Yes, but we're no longer classified according to our sin. We are classified according to the grace of God, which means he has made us holy. What a beautiful and amazing grace. This is why John Newton would write, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. One who had traded human beings in slavery that would come to faith in Jesus. Notice here Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I love these words. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith. And look what it says. Into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. You see, that is the grace that saves us and sustains us. That the Apostle Paul is saying to the Philippians and he's saying to us. Oh, the goodness of God's grace in your life. Now, friends, family, church family, those that are here and those that are watching, are you going to internalize this tremendously powerful book in your life? I hope that you will internalize the book of Philippians. Some of you have the notes from every single sermon, but let me tell you, much more important than the notes from every single sermon is the Bible that is in your hand. And if you will go back and you will read again and again these four chapters and allow this to wash over your heart as trouble comes, as hardship comes into your life, as as the challenges and perhaps even persecution comes into your life, you will remember the words of Paul. And God's Holy Spirit will minister to your need, reminding you that you have the grace that you need to be and to do all that God has called you to be and do. Now, two questions for reflection. The first one is this. Jesus Christ died to pay the sin debt of all who will come to him and believe. Here's the question. Have you received him? I know that there's people in this room who you've kind of received Christianity to some degree, but maybe you've adapted to Christianity, but you've never truly come to the Savior. You see, coming to church isn't what saves you. It's Christ. And I, I just want to say that we, we call you, we beg you to step across in faith and repentance to receiving Christ, the one who laid down his life that you might live eternally. How about this? If you have received Christ, are you walking in the truths of Philippians? And here's what it means. Joy in faithfulness. Joy in unity. Joy 
in Christ's likeness, as Christ went to the cross, laying down his life, and even joy in suffering. Friends, this is the message of Philippians. This is what should impact our lives. May we never be the same as we live out and unleash Philippians in our lives. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer? Holy Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for tying Paul down to where he would have to focus. I don't, I don't know that we would have the book of Philippians, Lord, if you hadn't orchestrated a time for him to be still and quiet. Lord, in your sovereign goodness, you cause all things to work together for the good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, I thank you this morning for the book of Philippians. And I thank you even here 2,000 years later for all the circumstances that were around it. Lord, I thank you for the joy of salvation that the Apostle Paul enjoyed. And I thank you for the joy of salvation that the Philippian people enjoyed. Lord, I thank you for the joy of salvation of the Roman church that was around Paul. I thank you for the joy of salvation that even those that were in Caesar's household, those who would be lights in the midst of the upper echelons that would so persecute the church later. Lord, I thank you that you were at work. Lord, I pray that we would take these words and that we would eat them, that we would find them as nourishment to our lives, our souls. And Lord, I pray that when the trouble comes for us, Lord, whether it's a car wreck or whether it's a cancer, Lord, whether it's some type of persecution, that we would be a people who say, no, we remember the words of life. That we can rejoice always in any circumstance. And we can pray and God hears us. We can give thanks and God is blessed. And we can depend upon the peace of God that surpasses all of our circumstances. Lord, I pray that your word would be played out in our lives. Thank you for this precious congregation, Lord. I thank you for those that are at home today. Father, how I pray that they too have been touched by your word and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you sing together?